taken up into heaven. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles who had chosen after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. to begin this morning by posing a question. It's a rhetorical question. I'm not going to ask you to, uh, to turn to anybody so you can uh, breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, I want you just to cast your memory back uh, to the time when you became a Christian. And I want you to think about the significant people who played a part in that. Now, for some of you, maybe you are saying at this moment, well, I've always been a Christian. I can't remember a moment before I was a Christian. But nevertheless, there may well have been people who've been significant in your journey in helping you to grow as a Christian. Okay. The second question then is related to that. But if you were hearing about Jesus for the first time now, in this season of your life, how would you like to hear the good news? And from whom would you like to hear it? And the third question is um, based perhaps on that answer that you've given to the second question. How might that desire on your part shape the way in which you share the good news with other people? How you would like to be ministered to, how then would that shape the way that you share the good news with people around you? We'll come back to, to those questions uh, in, in, a, in a moment, more or less. Uh, our reading this morning from Acts, uh, for those of you who participated in one of our um, Ascension Day services, oh my goodness, one of our
our Ascension Day services on this past Thursday. That was the reading that was set for, for that day. But it's, it's such a pivotal reading because it takes our memories back over what Jesus has done. Uh, it uh, sets our minds forward on, on what is to come. And there, there are three lines that I just want to highlight very quickly. The, the fourth, fourth line, the fourth verse, which says, Wait for the gift my Father has promised which you have heard me speak about. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And we in this post-Pentecost age know, of course, that he was talking about the Holy Spirit. And so it connects so well with, with our, our prayer vigil uh, that this is our way, perhaps, of recalling what it must have been like, of, re- of honoring that moment of, of reflection, of prayer, as we await, as we await to hear afresh what God is going to do with us as he continues to pour his spirit out upon us. That gift that the Father has promised. The next line that I want to highlight is the one that goes, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, there's a connection between the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the purposes for which we have been called together. Yes, the Spirit ministers to us and He brings us healing and wholeness and assurance of of who we are and, 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 and who we are loved by. But it's also, it is to equip us. The Holy Spirit comes that we might be equipped to be witnesses to what God is doing. Here, in our district, our nation, and indeed to the very ends of the earth. And then the final line, the last line, which I really love to to highlight, uh, goes, people of Galilee, or men of Galilee as they were then, uh, these two strangers, which maybe they were angels, passers-by, who knows. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? that a temptation sometimes on the part of the church is that we get rooted to the spot and we continue to look where Jesus was, where we last spotted Jesus, there we fix our eyes and it is as though these angels are saying to these men, Jesus is gone, he's moved on, you've got things to do you've got preparations to make and beyond that you've got witnessing to do move on move on and I believe that that is a message to the church on this day too. And so we are called. We're called to be witnesses. And this morning, uh, I want to talk, as we continue with this series on, on being radical, I want to talk about the topic of radical witness, building on what we did last week, that we are called to radical relationships if you remember, we, we called to embody that radical love that God pours out in us uh, through Jesus Christ. And that love is meant to result in our relationships with each other being so different, being so changed, being so different from the relationships that we, we see around us in the world that people go, God must be at work there. There has to be some explanation for why they love each other so much. And it is meant to make us so attractive that people are drawn to us to know more about this God of ours. And so this morning I want us to to then take that extra step as to what it means then to witness radically. 
to be radical witnesses. Now, based on those questions that I was asking, uh, posing a little bit earlier, there may be some of you here who already have a kind of a sense, a negative sense, a negative feeling building up within you. The thought that you might be called to go out and to share your faith. You're probably not alone if that's how you feel, because on average, many of us feel out of our depth. We feel anxious when we're called to, to share. And I think it's got a lot to do with, with the culture in which we grow up. How many of us have grown up with the idea that, that one's faith is intensely personal? Some of us maybe grew up in homes where there were still those no-no words, those no-no topics. You never spoke about sex or politics or religion. Considered to be intensely personal, something that you just was uh, too controversial to talk about. Well, we've overcome our, our hesitancy about talking about sex. Uh, it's all over the television, television sets and it's in our conversations wherever we go. We also don't seem to hesitate too much about talking about politics. But it's strange that we still have this lurking reluctance to talk about what God means to us, what God means to me, and to share that, that faith. For some we go, well, my faith is mine, and I really have no right to try and persuade anybody else to believe what I believe. And indeed, we, we live in this intensely secular uh, society, one in which we have the trappings of postmodernism that says that there are, are many truths and you just have to pick a truth that you like today, and that's your truth. Maybe there's some of you today who are not feeling negative about sharing. Maybe there are many here who do your very best to share what you believe, and well done to you. I know that there, there are many of you here. But maybe it's not about being negative, but it is about being fearful and uncertain, not knowing how to share your faith effectively. And maybe as I, I give you the topic of radical witness, you're going, oh my goodness, he's going to challenge us to do all sorts of things that are going to embarrass us intensely. And maybe that's because many of us, again, have these sort of stereotypes in our minds as to what radical witness looks like, what radical evangelism looks like. Maybe it's door-to-door, -door, you know, cold calling. We have these images of, of people in suits, very difficult to get off your doorstep once they arrive there. Maybe that's a negative thing. Maybe you imagine those pushy people who sometimes greet you in an airport or in an entrance to a supermarket. Maybe it's those people that you've encountered at some point or other who have had a message which doesn't seem to be so much about love as, as about turning or burning. And that may be effective in some circumstances, but I think in our society, the harm that that kind of message does probably outweighs the good that there is a sense of condemnation unless you give your life to Christ. What about setting up a novel new Tendi evangelism channel or a wonderful new website or some other new and creative idea? See, all of these things, we, we talk about 
a call to radical witness. In actual fact, none of these things is radical at all. They're all old. And none of them, to be honest with you, that I've mentioned in the last list of four or five, is actually radically effective. Not in this day and age. And so my call this morning is for us to be thinking more, well, what does it mean to be an effective witness? What does it mean to be radical in our community and in this age? Well, I want to say something else, which maybe the call to radical witness is really not a call to be radical witnesses, which places all the emphasis. We, we say we call to be radical witnesses. The emphasis is actually all on us and on our methods. But maybe our call is to be witnesses to that which is radical. Now, we certainly know somebody who's radical. I believe that our call to be radical witnesses is, in fact, to find ways not of pointing to us or finding new and clever ways of doing things, but to find more effective ways of simply pointing to the radical God of love who we know, to radical relationship with this amazing, wonderful Father God. In case you are in any doubt, and I've spoken about this quite a lot, but in case you're in any doubt about the radical nature of Jesus, let me just refresh your memories from, from the scriptures, some of the well-known stories. You remember that Jesus ministered to the sick and to the marginalized. Remember, he visited those who had leprosy. He went out of his way to seek those that were lost in that society, the society of the day, who were an underclass, who were reviled. I wonder who Jesus would be ministering to in our community today. Because I suggest that that's where he would be. He would still be seeking out those who are marginalized, who are on the fringes of society, those who are rejected, maybe because of ill health, or maybe because of a whole range of other stigmas that we manage to label people with. I suspect that that, our radical God, that's where he will be. You remember that Jesus fed the hungry. I, I've said it before, I might even have said it from, the, from this pulpit, I said, you know, Jesus didn't come to set up a, a string of of soup kitchens. There's no evidence of that. But that's not entirely correct, is it? Because where he saw people with need, whether it was physical or emotional or indeed empty stomachs, he met their need. You remember the feeding of the 5,000? Remember that moment when people were hungry and his disciples said, no, no, send them away. Their hunger is somebody else's problem. Well, let them go and draw on their own resources to be fed. And Jesus said, no, the hungry who have come to seek us, to come and seek me, they are our responsibility. We will feed them. We will use our resources to feed them. You remember Jesus welcomed the little children. And again, the disciples. I, I love the disciples because I find myself falling the way they did repeatedly. And at least I have a witness that they were redeemed. They wanted to push the children away, and Jesus said, no, let the children come, because you see, they're a fine example of, 
of the kind of faith that, that we need to have. Jesus loves children. He loves the children then, and he loves our children now. Jesus ministered to hated foreigners. Remember the woman at the well, Samaritan, reviled, an underclass, despised. Jesus went out of his way to share the good news with her. I think his heart must break at South Africa and how thin our tolerance is. The xenophobia that lies just below the surface. For a, for a country that calls itself Christian, I cannot understand how those two things can live together. Jesus welcomed the foreigner. He held them up in the parables that he told as examples of people who were to be followed. You know, we, even those of us who say, well, I'm not xenophobic, be careful. Because so many of us go, I'm right. The way that I do things is right. My language is better. My tribe is better than the other tribe. My whatever it is, dot, dot, dot. And the moment you start venturing into the area of superiority, know that Jesus is no longer on your side. That Jesus favors those who are despised, those who are less fortunate, those who battle to have their hands on the resources that some of us have. Jesus favors those who are out rather than those who are in. Jesus is radical. Jesus remains radical. Jesus cared for women. In a time when women weren't even considered to be <laughs> uh, adequate to be witnesses in a court, Jesus loved them. He drew them in. He ministered to them. He healed them, not just physically, but he went out of his way to ensure that they were restored to fellowship with their communities. Jesus entrusted women with tasks to do. And you remember the woman caught in adultery? who Jesus had mercy on her, refused to condemn her. And there's a hint in what he was saying, that he was saying, hang on, there's a little bit of gender injustice here. Where's the man? It takes two to tango. You wanted to, to stone her. Where's the man? Jesus was radical, and we think we've rediscovered, we've discovered something radically new in, you know, the uh, hashtag Me Too. Jesus was there long before us, rooting for the rights of those who are downtrodden. He was radical then, and he's radical now. Jesus held religiosity very lightly. His disciples did things that offended people. Jesus recognized that, that human beings came before rituals. Jesus condemned those who abused power, went out of his way to do it as he took on the Pharisees and the others who should have known better. I wonder who Jesus would be tackling in our society. I think the church has gone disturbingly quiet in the way in which we hold power to account. We go, okay, we now have a wonderfully democratically elected country, uh, government, but that's not where it stops. We call to carry on holding those people to account, to criticize when it is necessary, to show a mirror to those who are corrupt. 
And Jesus showed a new model of leadership. He said, if you want to be great, you need to learn to be a servant. That's the way that Christians are meant to do it. And then maybe the last thing that I want to mention as I I sum up the, the radical nature of our God. Maybe this is possibly the most challenging for for many of us, those of us who live in gated communities, and I'm one of those. I live in a magnificent gated community on this property. Jesus lived a materially simple life. He owned nothing. He didn't have a bed to sleep on. He found his identity and his security in his father and in doing the work of his father. Jesus was radical. He challenges us. And we are called to follow him and to do what he's doing. It's hard. It's not easy. And we can't do it in our own strength. That's the point. That's the point. For many of us here in this room, we understand what I've just said. So many of us here have, have felt the forgiveness and the grace and the compassion of this amazing radical God. I crawled to the feet of Jesus so often to ask for forgiveness, more often than I care to admit to you. I thank God that he's radical and that he forgives and that he forgives and that he forgives. Not the way the world that holds things against people forever, holds grudges. Our amazing God forgives and forgives. So what then is the nature of our witness? How are we called to share this radical God with the world? You know, it's not with clever arguments or being particularly articulate. I think we need to follow the example of Paul, who wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, when I came to you, I did not come, with you, come to you with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that, you might not, uh, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. That's a relief, isn't it? That we don't need to be clever or educated or have a theological degree in order to be an effective witness. We simply need to be channels for God's Holy Spirit. If we look at the really idea, the idea of being a witness, imagine again the, uh, the, court, the courtroom, which is where our imagery around witness comes from. What is required of a witness? A witness is required only to share about that which they know, what they have heard and seen and experienced. In fact, anything beyond that is hearsay. I fear there are many Christians that are guilty of sharing hearsay. Because all that we can share is the extent to which we know the love of our God. And many of us are on a journey. Some of us are a a long way along, and some of us are taking the first little tiny steps. And all that we are called to share as effective witnesses is the God that we know as we continue our journey in his company and in his, in his spirit. 
we're called not to speak, although sometimes that is what we are called to. We've always got to be ready to give uh, the reason for the hope that we have, and that might require words. But very often, it's going to be our lifestyle that is going to speak the most about what we believe. And indeed, the witness in the, in the, in the, the, in the box in a, in a court case, what makes a reliable witness is the consistency of their story, the consistency of the evidence that they give. How consistent are we as witnesses? How consistent is our lifestyle with the things that we proclaim? I want to ask uh, maybe a, a basic question. Perhaps some of us are, are still pondering. Why is it that we're called to be witnesses at all? You know, surely there are other people who are called to be witnesses, but maybe I'm not. Well, unfortunately for, for all of us, those of us who are nervous and worried about witnessing, anxious, is that it is a command. We're called to witness. Around this time of year, we, we are reminded very often of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, read you again those words, go therefore and disciple all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There are no conditions placed upon that command, and it is indeed a command. It applies to all of us. All of us are called to share and to make disciples in one way or another. We're called to make disciples and to share and to be witnesses because that is the very purpose for which we have been shaped and called. John 15 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I sent you, that, sent you forth so that you could bear fruit. You see, if we are connected to the vine and we are not being productive and fruitful, then we're in danger. We're in danger of losing the very purpose for which we are attached to the vine, and that is to bear fruit. And the fruit is not just in terms of wonderful changes in our character. The fruit is in bringing other people to be connected and grafted into the vine as we are. And dare I, I say it, that one of the reasons why we are called to be witnesses is not about us, it is about those that we are ministering to. Romans 10 verse 14 says, How then shall they call upon him uh, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him if they have not heard? And how shall they hear unless there is one who proclaims him. How will those around us ever come to know Jesus Christ unless we are prepared to share what we know? And the final thing, as if we didn't know it, is that we are in a spiritual battle and that our call as each person that we reach out to is drawn into God's kingdom. We are saving them from the darkness they go from being children of the devil, children of the darkness, to being drawn into the light and into personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything is at stake. It's not neutral. It's not that we reach out to people just simply to bless them. We reach out to people so that they might be saved. It's a serious task that has been entrusted to us and one that we need to take seriously. I want to close by just simply reminding us in practical terms how we might set about witnessing, this radical witnessing that we're called to 
begins with maybe something that is, maybe it's hard for some of you, but it is an amazing gift, and it's a call to pray. To be effective radical witnesses, we begin on our knees. And so if you are still hesitating, even now, as to whether you you have any part to play in the vigil, in this 24-7 vigil over the next six days, seven days, please, if you want to be an effective witness, you need to be on your knees, and there's no better place to be than in that prayer room for the next couple of days. We require no no, uh, qualifications. We require only ourselves to to have a, a relationship with Jesus Christ for us to be effective witnesses. It's never too late to start. So even if you are in your 90th year or beyond that, and you have never once mentioned the name of Jesus to anybody, today is the day. Today is the day is when you go home and you speak to your neighbor and you say, you know where I went this morning? I went to church. And maybe that one little clue as to what your life is about and the things that motivate you and the place where you get your strength and your healing and your sense of identity, that one word might be the word that somebody needs this very day. Take courage. Take courage and speak of that of which you know. I want to read to you a, uh, a little passage that came from a, a commentary. And it's a, a sum up, if you like, and a reminder. You must not miss the radicality of Jesus' words to his disciples and to us. We do our best to try and domesticate Jesus' call, sometimes, I'm adding, and the call of his discipleship and witness. We sometimes turn them into rules, into steps for better living. We sometimes sprinkle them into the cracks of our lives. (laughs) But we are very careful lest they take root within us. But what if they did? What if the radicality of Jesus genuinely, really took root within our lives? What if we let this gospel loose in our lives? What if we allowed it to take hold of our actions, our relationships, and everything that we hold dear? What if we were a witness of Christ's abiding love to not only the world, but into the very core of who we are as human beings? Could we stand to let God into the depths of our hurts, into our shame, into the things that truly keep us from living? Is it possible, is it possible to allow the Spirit of God into our lives this day and every day and to be truly transformed and turned upside down by him do we dare this day do we dare this Pentecost to give ourselves completely and entirely to this radical God and to allow him to transform us and to transform our witness to the world